Thank you, Cinderella, for that beautiful intro music. Cinderella, one of the more underrated 80s hair bands, in my opinion, along with Dokken. I'm sorry, I think Dream Warriors was one of the best music videos I've ever seen. Uh, don't at me or do at me. I don't care. You're wrong if you disagree. Hey, welcome to the Facts Over Fandom show. It is another Friday. I'm excited to be with you here. And hey, we are on the heels of a new NBA and NHL world champions. So congratulations, Denver Nuggets went to the NBA Finals. And uh, just recently here, just a couple days ago, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, not Black Knights, not Red Knights, not White Knights, Golden Knights for winning the NHL Stanley Cup. And this episode, we're going to talk about sports marketing. And as I was thinking about the Nuggets in their championship, and I always try to put something out, or, or recently I've been trying to put out a little bit more topical things on Twitter. So I see things going on in pro, college sport, even amateur sport, and then you know try to comment on them and give a little bit more context, at least in the business side. Because remember, with this show, we're looking at sports at the intersection of business, sport, and culture, and at least trying to give you a little bit more of kind of that business culture side with things going on um, it, that are that are popular in the news and sport right now. And I thought, man. If Wendy's has not partnered with the Denver Nuggets, they are missing a huge opportunity. Because if you're a fan of, of Wendy's fast food restaurants and, and you check them out on social media, their Twitter is pretty funny. Um, you know, you know, they really like to market their nuggets. And what a, and th these two things go hand in hand, the Denver Nuggets and Wendy's Nuggets. And so I went onto the Nuggets website, and sure enough, they have a deal with Wendy's. They think if I don't know if they win by double digits or score so many points, you get you know a coupon for Wendy's, something like that. I'd have to go back to my my Twitter and look, um, and that just doesn't make for great radio for me, kind of scrolling through my phone. But they already kind of had a deal going on there, and so you know I'm thinking about that and how can I explain kind of sport marketing? I mean, it's a huge, huge topic. You know, I take 16 weeks to teach on this in my full-time job talking about sports marketing, but how can I kind of like boil it down in 30 minutes um, for an audience to kind of come away with what is kind of unique about sport marketing? So I, I have people ask me all the time, like, why would a student study sport management in school? And, one, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. One of the things that, that I tell them, like, hey, listen, you know, um, marketing a, a product, let's say you're marketing... Um, insurance or something like that. It's much, much different than marketing a team. Now, concept's kind of the same. Listen, I'm an insurance company. I need to make enough revenue to cover my expenses and, and have a profit. Same thing with sports teams. We need to make enough revenue to cover our expenses and have a profit. However, the final thing that we sell, the actual product that we sell, very, very different. And the consumer's are very, very different. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today, just some of the differences between traditional and sports marketing. Uh, before we get into that, again, welcome to the show. Uh, we are on, we're, we're a podcast, but we're also um, a video show if you want to stare at me. Now, some episodes, and I don't recommend you, you doing that, even though, you know, the numbers do help, but I'm not the prettiest guy you're going to look at. However, um, Every now and then we get an episode where I'll have some things. I'll bring up some graphics to kind of help explain what I'm talking about. I'm going to do that today. So if you want to check us out uh, on video, you can check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash uh, at, at symbol, F-O-F underscore show. 
You can also check us out on Rumble. We're on Rumble as well, if you prefer um, that that video um, video website. And then podcast, we ask, please listen to us on Spotify. Um, that helps us as we think about maybe one day monetizing the show down the road. Um, but hey, every listen helps. So whether you listen to us on Spotify, you listen to us on Apple, you listen to us on Google, um, you listen to us on Amazon, any one of those, they all help. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to tell you something, talking about numbers you know especially youtube uh youtube has, has been a really nice spot for us when we when i first started i say us it's just me when i first started the show i thought about you know I, I like podcasting i like sitting behind a microphone and i like talking that's where i'm comfortable i don't really want to do a video show i don't know my my video editing skills as you can tell if you're watching this uh, on YouTube or Rumble, they're not that good. I mean, I just use iMovie, and, and I'm not even all that good at that. You know, I wish um, I had this thing built up where I could have an intern or, or you know, a, a producer or somebody who's good with digital that can make this thing look really cool. And, and I mean, I just have my my laptop up. That's my camera. I don't have anything special. I don't have any lighting other than like the natural light coming in to my office here at, at home. Um, but. You know, I kept researching, researching. I've I've had other podcasts, and I don't know if you knew, but YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world. I think right behind uh, Google. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll do it. I'll put it out on YouTube, and we get lots more views, listens, whatever you uh, interactions on YouTube than we have through the podcast. And I and I've had some successful podcasts in the past, so I'm a little bit surprised with that. So we're going to continue. Uh, along with YouTube and see how this goes. But I can tell like the numbers, the past few episodes, they've been pretty good. If I, if I go back through the past, you know, um, half a dozen episodes or or so, you know, I mean, again, I, I'm not doing Joe Rogan numbers, anything like that, but they've been solid. And, and I can see like um, views are continuing to grow. And please, if you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe um, and uh, like each episode, it helps with the algorithm there. Um, but last week, views were down precipitously. And I think it was due to the topic. Now, it's an interesting topic. We talked about sports gambling last week, but the topic of last week's show was the house always wins. And if you're somebody who likes to gamble, you don't want to hear that. You know, you might enjoy this show, but you don't want to hear that you're probably going to lose and only three to five percent of sports gamblers actually make money in the long run. Um, so I said at the beginning of last week's show that that episode, we were probably going to be stepping on some toes. Obviously, we did that. Uh, hopefully we get you back. And hey, listen, you know, this is the Facts Over Fandom show. I am not here to give you hot takes. Um, I'm certainly not here to, you know, kind of happy talk things. Um, I, I don't even really kind of want to give you my opinion. I just kind of want to find interesting things that are going on right now in sport and just explain kind of the facts behind those, right? So um, give me a chance today to, um, I don't even want to say redeem myself. I'm not worried about that, but to, to maybe kind of earn you back a little bit. So check us out, um, all those places we talked about for um, the video component, the audio component, and we're on social media, uh, Twitter, and Instagram at FOF underscore show, FOF underscore show, Instagram and Twitter. Check us out there. So let's get into the topic today, talking about sport marketing. I told you I'm going to bring up 
a couple things here for you. Um, let me get this slideshow started. So I want to talk about sports marketing. I only got four things, four little slides, but you know, knowing me, I'll be able to talk for an hour on this. So I'm going to try to condense it down as much as I can. Um, but think about your favorite sports promotion and why. So if you're watching on the video, you can see that I've got a picture of a dog holding a bat at home plate, and I've got a picture of a Corvette, um, and a, the trunk of the Corvette is filled with baseballs. So I, one of my jobs, I worked in baseball, and I sold sponsorships. So I sold corporate partnerships for a couple baseball teams. And these were two of my favorite promotions that I ever did. You know, one um, here on my left, I guess, looking at the dog with the bat, um, I went to a company and they were a dog training company. Now, not dog training like, you know, police dogs, bomb sniffing, anything like that. But, you know, millions and millions and millions, me included. In fact, mine is is right here. You'll probably hear him barking at some point here in the episode. I'm surprised he hasn't already done it, but I've got my dog at my feet right here. I'm not going to move the camera because I don't want to give any buddy vertigo, but he's right here um, at my feet. We There's millions of homeowners that have dogs across the country and we're not equipped to train them. Maybe we don't have time. Maybe we don't have the resources. Maybe we don't know how to do it properly. And so this company, they help train dogs. And really, I think they kind of help train people to get their dogs to do what it is that they want they want to do. I think they more um, were, you know, training the owners on how to um, get their dogs to behave in a certain way, more probably more than they were the dogs. But anyways, I go to this company and I say, hey, listen, I got an idea for you. You know, we want to get you a, a big sign in the outfield. Um, you know, it, it, there's been some studies that have shown people look at outfield signs almost 300 times when they're in a, a baseball stadium during a game. Um, so, you know, that's going to be kind of your big anchor point there. But with that, we and, and it's going to be a pretty this is one of our pricier sponsorships. But with that, we want to drive people through your doors. And when we're talking about marketing, I mean, there's different ways that we do marketing. I'm going to talk about the four P's here in just a second. But if you're a company and you're doing marketing, you know, Brand awareness could be one of those things where you see um, your return on your investment, right? Um, actual revenue, people walking through the door could be one of the ways that you kind of measure success or your ROI. And, and I dealt with mostly smaller kind of local companies. So that was kind of the angle I always took with these companies was how can we bring revenue through your door? You know, not just kind of increase your brand awareness because smaller companies just don't have thousands and thousands of dollars just to throw out to increase brand awareness. We actually need to see some money coming back in the door. So I said, hey, what if we take one of your superbly trained dogs and make them a bat dog? And you see this at minor league stadiums all across the country. You know, here in the Midwest, Jake the Diamond Dog, the Golden Retriever is, is really, really popular. And they said yes. And so sure enough, they got their outfield sign and they got all these other components. And then their dog was the bat dog for our team. And player would hit the ball, drop the bat, they'd go to first. Bat dog comes out, picks up the bat and takes it to the dugout. Never had any issues 
with the dog doing that. He he just did a great job. And hey, it's it's free. We don't have to pay a bat boy to do it. We got a bat dog. And the fans loved it. And it was just kind of a, a great way to showcase their training. And I think they actually made money on that sponsorship. So that was a win. The second one is you're looking the Corvette here filled with baseballs. I go to an auto dealership and, you know, again, kind of dealing with kind of smaller companies. Now, this one was a Chevy dealership. So, I mean, obviously they're doing well, uh, but, you know, kind of dealing with more local companies. They don't have a car to give away. It, you know, it can't give away a Camaro or a Corvette or Tahoe or anything like that. Um, but they could pay for a VIP package with the team, which included four tickets and food and shirts and autographs and player meet and greet and all that stuff, right? They could they could buy that. And so for them, for their return on investment, I said, okay, I'm going to come to the dealership. I'm going to bring 300 some odd baseballs with me. We're going to fill up a Corvette and we're either going to have that Corvette out at the stadium and we're going to put somebody next to the Corvette and people can come up and they can guess the balls or we can get a big picture for the games that you can't be there. We're going to get a big picture blown up and we'll put it out there in the concourse and people can guess how many baseballs did we fit in that trunk of that Corvette. And so people would come and they would get a slip and they'd write down on the slip, you know, hey, this is my name. This is my address, phone, email, all my contact information. This is what I currently drive. Am I in the market for a new car? Yes or no? Here's my guess. And then with that, they were able to take those thousand people or so that signed up for the promotion that to try to guess the balls to win this VIP team package. Um, they would take those and then give them to their salespeople. And so those are kind of, eh, they're, they're somewhat of cold leads, right? But a little bit warmer lead than just kind of cold, cold calling somebody. And you already have a little bit of information about them, about what they're driving and if they're market, in the market for a new car, what type of car they're in the market for. So, you know, I could just give them a call if I'm a salesperson at the Chevy dealership and say, hey, thanks for um, signing up. Unfortunately, your pick did not win, uh, but we, we appreciate you signing up. Hey, let me ask you why I got you here. I, I saw that you're in the market for a new car. Is there a particular car that you're looking for that we may be able to help you with? Or, you know, what's your timeline in buying? Are you looking to buy something now, six months from now, a year from now? I'm looking to buy a year from now. Okay, well, hey, great. Well, listen, um, keep us in mind. I'd like to talk to you from a year a year from now. Or, no, we need something here pretty soon in the next couple of months before the kids go back to school. Well, great. What are you looking for? Well, we, you know, we're looking for an SUV. Oh, we well, got to come in and, and check out the Equinox. Hey, let's set up a, a time for you to come in this Friday and, and I'll be the one that helps you and, and we'll have one already ready for you to go. You won't have to wait. So, you know, all they had to do was just sell one car to see that return on their investment there. So that's kind of what we're talking about with sports marketing, at least, I mean, there's different things that we can look at in marketing. Again, this, I could go on for hours, but for the most part, you know, I kind of think of about sports marketing as, as that our ROI for brands that want to partner themselves with sports teams. So if you've never taken a business class before, or all this stuff kind of seems foreign to you, let me back up real quick. Let me talk about the four P's of the marketing mix what that looks like uh, for a company in sport. And then we'll talk about the uh, 
the differences between traditional and sports marketing. So there's four P's in the marketing mix. And again, if you've been a business student, none of this is new to you. You've heard this before. But the four P's are product, price, place, and promotion. So we're thinking about product, looking at the actual event versus the experience. I love talking about minor league sports, specifically minor league baseball. You know, if I'm if I'm major league baseball, you know, the product is on the field. For the most part, people are coming to a major league baseball game because they want to watch that team. They've got a vested interest in that team. They have a vested interest on if that team is winning or losing. Minor league baseball, for the majority of people coming, they don't know the players. They don't care if the team wins or loses. Yeah, it's nice if you win. But if not, no big deal. Nobody's living or dying with it, right? I'm coming for the experience. I want the discounted food, the fireworks, the opportunity to meet the, the special guests that they got there that night. So um, the local team in my community, every year they bring out one of the actors from the office to come and do a meet and greet. And they've got an office night with bobbleheads and things like that. It's, it's a ton of fun, right? Or, you know, they got the San Diego chicken coming to town that night. You know, it's the experience experience because people don't necessarily have a vested interest in the players or or winning and losing of the team. It's more having a great time at a good price coming out. So what is your product in the marketing mix? That's one of the first things you kind of kind of figure figure it out. Then second is price. Pretty easy, right? And we're thinking about value versus perceived value. So I'm a big Cubs fan. I have been a Cubs fan since, you know, God help me, since I was seven years old, I'm 43 now. I think I'm 43 now. So for the past 36 years, and for most of those 36 years, they stink, right? However, you know, 2015, they got better. They go to the playoffs. 2016, one of the greatest days of my life when they win the World Series. So when they're rolling and they're playing really well, I am willing to spend $100, $150 on crappy seats at Wrigley because the perceived value for me to be there and see them win is really, really high. I'm okay with that $100, $150 price point. It hurts. There's a lot of other things I could do with $100 or $150. I, you know, I, I could probably buy a 10-game package to my local minor league team for that. Um, but, you know, it, it's the Cubs. It's the team I love. They're winning. I want to be there. I want to feel the energy. I want to be with other um, fans who are feeling the same thing. Right now, as we record this, as I record this podcast, let's see, it is Thursday, June 15th. Right? Cubs are six games under 500, and I think they're four and a half back. Now, four and a half back isn't that isn't that far back in the Central, but they're six games under 500. They have not been playing well. If you ask me, hey, you can go to a Cubs game. It's $50 for a ticket. The perceived value right now is just not that great. I don't want to drive three hours and pay for gas, pay for food, pay for parking, which is a pain at Wrigley Field, or, or park far away and then take the train in. I don't want to give up all that time for a ticket that's a whole lot cheaper than I would be willing to pay if they were good because the perceived value is just not that great to me, right? So that plays into it when you're thinking about your price. Okay, the uh, so we've talked about product, we've talked about price, place. 
where do we sell these things? Right? We're going to uh, go over that when we look at Nike here in just a second. And then finally, promotion. How do we promote our, our business? Advertising, personal selling, publicity, sales promotion, public relations. How do we get out and how do we get people to actually come in and enjoy the game? And this is where I think when people think about marketing, this is kind of the traditional marketing that they think of. Um, print type of marketing, you know, running ads in newspapers, um, TV media, TV and re radio marketing. Or what's really exploding right now is digital marketing, social media, websites, other ways of getting fans in the stands. So you got an idea of what the marketing mix is. And so if we look at a company like, like Nike, and you know Nike is obviously a sporting company, we look at the product, um, their product, sporting events, highly effective and comfortable quality and reputation. I would say kind of the, the mainline product of Nike is are, are their shoes and the apparel. Now, obviously they sponsor and they have sporting events with Nike Summer League and whatever, but the product of Nike, it's highly effective, it's comfortable, it's some of the best sporting equipment, it seems like a bad, best sporting apparel that you could buy. Because you know, you've got the top athletes in the world use Nike. Even Tiger Woods had a clause in his contract where if the, the Nike products were not up to snuff, that he could use a competitor. Right. So Nike is kind of has that perception as having quality product. So with that, as we go to price, since it's a higher end product, they can charge higher prices. Not too difficult to understand. As we think about their promotion, so how does Nike get in front of millions? Well, endorsements are really big, and Nike spends billions in endorsements each year with a B, billions of aligning themselves with players and then use leveraging those players for people to buy Nike. Okay. And then um, other promotions that they have, obviously, the, the official um, uh, outfitter and, and apparel sponsor of Major League Baseball, um, of the NBA, of the NFL. So if you want to buy your favorite NFL jersey, um, your big Patrick Mahomes fan, Josh Allen, whatever, you know, you're buying a Nike jersey because Nike has an exclusive relationship with the NFL and that continues to help bolster Nike's revenue. And then finally, place. Um, you know, they've got shops all around the globe. They've got um, where you can find Nike products. They also have Nike stores, um, um, specifically Nike Worlds, you know, in, in bigger cities, kind of all around the world. And then you can also find them online on the internet. You can find Nike there as well. So you've got an idea there of the fundamentals of marketing, the four Ps and what that might look like for Nike. Okay, so with all that being said, let's look at traditional marketing versus sports marketing and just some of the differences there. And this is where I'm going to kind of start to explain or hopefully start to kind of teach you why somebody would be interested in studying sports marketing, sports management, and just some of the differences of how these teams and organizations try to reach out to their consumers and how they try to partner with different brands. So first, starting out with traditional marketing, 
Um, and if you're watching online um, on YouTube or Rumble, you're going to be able to see these. If not, I'll read these to you here if you're listening to audio. But traditional marketing. So this, the success of any entity may depend on defeating and eliminating the competition. So think about a place like Walmart. You know, they would come into different cities, kind of take out the mom and pop stores that took out their competition. And it's made them one of the largest, if not the largest retailer um, in, in the United States. And they're actually the second largest online retailer behind Amazon. Right. In sport marketing, though, it's a little bit different because these teams compete with each other on the field, on the court, on the ice, the diamond, whatever it is. However, they also have to cooperate with each other off the field. NFL has revenues in the billions every year, right? These teams have to agree to certain things with, with profit sharing. Um, how much do we want to pay the players? What type of advertising and, and initiatives do we want to do to help build this league? So, you know, I have got an interest in working, if I'm owner of Team A, I've got an interest in working with owner of Team B to strengthen that league. You know, they talk about protecting the shield, to strengthen the league, to get more eyeballs coming in because it's going to turn into more revenue for the league going forward. Even though when we play on Sunday, I want to beat you. Right. But off the field, I want to work with you. And how can we build this league as big as we can? Next, traditional marketing. Very few consumers consider themselves to be experts, but they instead rely on trained professionals for information and assistance. In sports marketing, though, a little bit different. Due to the preponderance of information and the likelihood of personal experience and strong personal identification, sport consumers often consider themselves to be experts. Think about it. You, you listening right now at home in your car. You're an expert on your team. I am an expert on the Chicago Cubs. I see the lineup come out just about every day. It's been a little bit better the past couple of days. But for the most part, I see the lineup come out before the game. Like, David Ross, what are you doing? What are you thinking, my man? Right? Because I'm an expert. I know better. Right? I'm the armchair quarterback. So, you know, traditional marketing, you know, when I go in to buy some type of an appliance, let's say a new refrigerator or something, I, I don't know what I necessarily need. I just, you know, for me, I just want it to keep my food cold. But maybe there's other things involved, you know, that that my wife wants that I'm not an expert on. Like, hey, we need, um, you know, it has to give out water and, and ice cubes and you got to be able to see inside it. And it's got to be hooked up to Wi-Fi and all this stuff. And I don't know what to buy. Right. So the difference between traditional and sports marketing, that's why you have to be prepared if you're going to work in sports sales, specifically ticket sales. You have got to be prepared to sell to both a winning and losing team. It's really important. All right, going to the next one, traditional marketing. When a customer purchase, purchases something like a sweater, it is a tangible and it can be seen and felt and used on more than one occasion. In sport though, the sport product, invariably you're going to a game, it's intangible, it's subjective, it's heavily experimental, uh, experiential. And so that's something when you're selling tickets or you're selling partnerships, whatever it is, Again, I talked about it earlier. You're selling that experience, right? Why am I going to spend $300 to take my wife and son to an NFL game when I can use that $300 for something else? You know, you as the marketer, you need to kind of set up that expectation, set up that experience and how this is just going to be amazing for your family. 
and it's going to be a great memory. And your own, your child's only going to be young for so long, and and they're going to get into other things. Like, wouldn't this just be something that you guys can keep with you for the rest of your life? So it's a little bit harder sell, um, just because it just the sports. It's it's intangible. You can't hold on to it. Traditional marketing, customer demand is more predictable because the product is always the same. Sport marketing, consumer demand tends to fluctuate widely. And a lot of that has to do with your um, win-loss record. I think that's pretty self-explanatory there. So again, you have to be prepared as the marketer to sell for both a losing and a winning team. Going back to traditional marketing, mainstream products have an inventory and shelf life and supplies can be replenished. You got an inventory. Sports marketing, the, the actual game itself, the product, the game itself, it's simultaneously produced and consumed. There's no inventory. Once it's done, it's done. Right? So if you're running a team, you're running a sport organization, when people come to the ballpark, when they come to the field, to the court, the arena, stadium, whatever it is, you need to make sure that they're having a great experience. And that means that the facility is clean, your employees are friendly, prices are reasonable, um, parking, it's not too difficult to get in and out and parking is accessible to the stadium. I mean, that that's just before they even get to their seat and start actually watching the game. Now, there's nothing you can do. So I've worked um, in baseball and in college athletics and um, as, a, as a professional and then, you know, volunteering. I, I've volunteered in, in a bunch of other different ways. On the business side, there is zero I can do to influence what happens on the field or on the court. There's nothing I can do. But I can make sure that when fans come in, uh, they feel welcome, that it's clean, that they're having a great time, regardless of what's going on on the field, on the court, on the ice, whatever. I can try to, I have a hand and control in a lot of other things. And that is really going to determine what helps people come back or not. Right? If people have a good time and they feel that they're getting a good value for what they're coming to watch, then if you have a losing team, you still got a chance to retain those customers. Right? Continuing on in traditional marketing. Although other people can enjoy the purchase of something like a car, the enjoyment or satisfaction of the purchaser does not depend on it. Right? Sport marketing, sport is generally publicly consumed and consumer satisfaction is invariably affected by the social facilitation. So what we're talking about here is, again, that experience, right? You as the customer, are you happy with what it is that you're watching and you're consuming with the sport? And it's wider than just the individual, right? So I go and I buy a car. I'm really the only one who's affected by it. Like my friends and family, they don't really care. They may think it's a nice car. We're like, oh, hey, great for you. You got a new car. But, you know, it's not going to move the needle for them one way or the other if I go buy a car. However, with sport, you know, a lot of us, we, we support the team's that are in our community or in our region, whatever it is. And it brings people together. And 
it kind of cuts across a lot of the crap that that divides us right now, right? So, and it helps. And when you get that social facilitation and, and people are excited and they can rally behind something, rally behind their team, it can result in increased revenue for a team or organization. Going back to traditional marketing, inconsistency and unpredictability are considered unacceptable. So, and the example here, if a particular car goes backward when the gear is engaged um, in drive, consumers would be up in arms. Obviously, right? I put the car in drive and all of a sudden now I'm going backward, I would be pretty upset, right? Sport marketing though, the sport product as we talked about, it's inconsistent, it's unpredictable. What are you doing to sell the experience and not necessarily the team? Traditional marketing, the mainstream marketer, they work with uh, research and design R&D to, to create the perceived perfect product. Right? We're going to come up with this idea and we're going to come up with a prototype and we're going to test it and we're going to continue testing it as we put it out to um, uh, consumers to um, try it out. And this is what they like. This is what they don't like. We'll continue to tweak. In sport, though, again, you as the marketer, you have little to no control over the core product, and you also often have limited control over the product extensions. Like you don't control what, what players they're bringing in and what players they're shipping out. So we're getting, you know, this is June. We got about one more month and a little bit of change until we get to the trade deadline in baseball. So I think this year it's August 1st. You know, as the sports marketer, if your team isn't doing very well, they're going to probably start to ship some of their better players out in the uh, hopes that they get some prospects coming at, coming back in. Right? So you don't have a lot of um, control over that as the sports marketer. Right? So again, what are you doing to take care of all the other things around the team that you can sell as opposed to just what's going on on the field. And then finally, uh, looking at traditional marketing, only religion and politics, which in and of themselves are not viewed as products or services, but rather as beliefs, are widespread as sport. In sports marketing, sport has almost universal appeal and pervades all elements of life. And so what we're talking about here, you know, a lot of products that you use, I mean, we use similar products to the to a certain extent, but like the the type, the cost, the value, the quality, all of those different types of things. I mean, they're kind of individual. You know, sport is kind of the unique thing. And this is why I've always enjoyed working in sport, where it has universal appeal and it, it cuts across a lot of different things in life. Like I said, it, it cuts across things, your, your political differences, religious differences, racial differences, sex differences, all um, financial, um, thinking about the class differences. Sport cuts across all that stuff uh, because it doesn't matter if you are a, a billionaire or you are somebody making $30,000 a year. If you both love the same team, you have got something in common where a lot of things in your life probably aren't, aren't even close. Fair? And so with that, 
how can you as a sports team, how can you rally your community? How can you rally your region? How can you rally your fans together to come together and enjoy and cheer for something that, you know, frankly, doesn't divide us? Now, sport divides us in the fact that, you know, I'm a Cubs fan and, you know, I have family that are Cardinal fans and that's a division there because that's a big rivalry. Or, you know, you're a Michigan fan and you've got your buddy, your best friend is an Ohio State fan and there's, you know, you've got that between you. But for the most part, even then, we can at least come together and watch a game and cheer for our team. I've never heard of anybody, you know, coming together like for political debates and, you know, cheering one side for the other and making wings and nachos and popcorn and just having a big thing and, and you know, kind of trading some barbs back and forth. But at the end of the day, okay, hey, great. You know, your side won. I'm going to go along, right? It, it, that just doesn't happen. Sport is just kind of that unique thing that helps to unite people. And I think that's a beautiful thing in sport. So there you go. Some differences between traditional marketing sports marketing, and hopefully kind of a little bit of an explainer there on why the selling that experience in sport is so, so important just because you cannot control what happens on the field. And for those in the front office, like on the, in the GM side, you know, that's their only concern for the, for the most part, obviously, you know, team, team president and business operations and the owner, they're worried about the revenue. Um, but those guys in, in the front office on the, the player development, they're really so much more concerned with the wins and the losses, but the majority of people who work in sport are going to be on that business development side on making sure that they're providing a great experience and people keep coming back to watch the games. So stay tuned for our next segment as I give a little bit of Uncle Brandon advice for those who were upset with Dave Portnoy's recent comments on Division Three football. That's coming up next. But let me hit you with some knowledge. All right, I teased it just a little bit ago, so now let's get into it. Some Uncle Brandon advice for those who are upset with Dave Portnoy's comments about D3 football just uh, made a couple days ago. Now, in the Uncle Brandon segment, or the Uncle Brandon advice segment, this is a, my opportunity to kind of opine a little bit and see what's going on out there in the in the sports kind of business culture and where they intersect and just kind of give my two cents on things and hopefully kind of help to explain why things are the way they are a little bit. So um, I've given Uncle Brandon advice to uh, athletes and gambling, to, to John Morant and guns. And now today we're going to talk about um, Division Three football and the comments from Dave Portnoy. So let me get to his comments here. And I'm going to stop it as we go and kind of give an explainer because I, I think the way that this has kind of been portrayed on social media has been Dave Portnoy kind of dogging D3 football. And maybe to a certain extent he he is. Um, I just don't know if that was actually the case in what was going on here. And, and I'll tell you here. So let me start this here a little bit. And hopefully you guys are going to be able to hear this sound okay. I don't think playing D3 football is impressive. I think you're nuts. Like no, I think it's it's who, still who like oh you played play D3, who wants to play D three football? 
They don't compete with the guys. No, that's the worst sport. You have to be a like psycho to just like D three football. The amount of work that goes in for like nothing. No, no thanks on D three football. So I, I disagree on, on on the fact that he says the amount of work for nothing. Obviously, it's an opportunity to play, and this is coming from a guy who's who's coached at a D three school, coached basketball. And now I, I've worked at a D3 school as a faculty member, um, worked in small college athletics for you know well over a decade at the JUCO level, NAIA levels. So I love college athletics, uh, small college athletics. I'm a fan of them, proponent of them. Um, I disagree that playing D3 football is for nothing. You know, only less than 6% of high school athletes get the opportunity to go on and play college athletics. So, you know, that is quite an accomplishment in itself to be one of the top 6% of high school athletes who have that opportunity to play um, college sports. And, and hey, you know, as a guy in his mid-40s, you know, maybe talking to a younger generation, play as long as you can. I mean, play until they, they got to rip the jersey off of you because we all have that last game. And for most of us, it comes pretty early. You know, most of us, we don't play outside of high school. You know, my last game, and this hits home with me a little bit, um, my last game where I played in an, in an organized sport with the jersey was in college as a freshman. I was a club sport athlete, so I wasn't a scholarship athlete. Um, you know, I, I wasn't getting anything other than the fact that I love playing the game. And I, I played rugby my freshman year of college, ended up getting hurt, and then that was it. So we all have this shelf life. Play as long as you can because you love the game. However, with that, what he's talking about here, and I think he goes into it a little bit more, with everything that goes into being a football player at the D3 level where he says you get nothing out of it, I think he's talking about in form of you know uh, a scholarship, money, prestige, possibly NIL, um, so on and so forth. You've got to be tough. And I think in a weird way, he's actually making that argument. Like if you're that type of person who who's going to play for ostensibly, as I use scare quotes, nothing, you, you got to be a tough guy to do that. And that's I think that's actually kind of a compliment that he's throwing to, to D3 football players, because if you know anything about football and, and I don't care what level you're talking about, but certainly, you know, higher levels as you go into college and, and even high school, like it is a grind and you have got to be tough. And there are so many difficult things physically that you got to go through to be a football player and to continue to do that in college when you're not getting paid for it in form of a scholarship or anything else, you know, he's saying you got to be psycho. So in a way, I think that was actually kind of a backhanded compliment to D3 football players on just how tough they are to continue to play something where you might not get that. We talked about this earlier with marketing, that tangible benefit of something that you can hold. Um, but for you as the football player, um, obviously there's a lot that comes out of playing D3 football um, that you get, whether it just be um, the experiences, um, the opportunity to be part of a team, um, the, the networking opportunities that come with it, maybe after college, and just the opportunity to to continue to to pursue a dream of playing and winning a national championship, even if it's not at a D1 level. All right, we'll continue the video here. What if you win a national title, D3? Like in football, nobody cares. Basketball? You want to be elite school. Basketball, yes. 100% play basketball, D3. Basketball, base, a lot of sports. Hockey, yes. Football, what goes into football? No. I don't know. 
again, I, I think that was kind of a compliment to football players just in their toughness. Now, nobody cares if you win a national championship. Yeah, I mean, uh, on, a, on a broad scale across the nation, not a whole lot of people could tell you who won last year's D3 football championship. I don't even know if I could tell you. Now, I know there's some good schools out there. Mount Union is a, is a really great uh, D3 school. They talk about um, Wisconsin um, um, White uh, Whitewater, I think, here in, in this video as well. So there's a lot of good D3 schools, you know, in basketball. Um, there, there's a lot of good uh, D3 schools that won a national championship. I'm trying to think who it was. Um, this past year in in men's and and I'm even having a hard time. Uh, maybe Carson Newman. I I can't remember. Um, so yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he's making the point, or I'm making the point for him. Maybe nationally, nobody cares. But certainly, those involved in that program care. That school cares. You know, it's a big deal to those who are involved. So I think you know, I I think that's a bad way to look at it. Um, at, on okay, well you know, you're doing something, but only a few people actually care about it. Well, so what? I mean, so what that nationally nobody cares about it? I mean, obviously, if you're involved in something, you want it to be the best you can be and you want to be the best you can be. I mean, me personally, I'm not a big bar stool guy. Now, I really, really like what Dave Portnoy did um, with his fun um, with COVID and helping out small businesses. Um, I thought that was really cool. I mean, here's an example of a guy using his platform to actually tangibly help people. Um, I think that was just a really, really, really cool thing um, that he did. But, you know, it, it's just not the way that I consume sport through Barstool. So, you know, what do I care if they're one of the best or, or, or biggest platforms, right? But they don't care necessarily what I think. And I, and I think that's the point that I'm trying to make here with, you know, if you're a D3 athlete, you might not care what anybody else thinks, but you're involved in it and you want it to be the best. All right, let's continue. What are you what, saying? What is it, Whitewater that's like the best team? Yeah. Yeah. Like UW-Whitewater. Yeah, that's cool. But like. Is that D3 or is that D1 double A? I can never get those straight. I don't think true D3 is. You would know what that is. And what's D2? Where's D2? You never D2. talk about D2. No, D2, I can sort of see. They're on You ESPN. never talk about it. Can you name no. a D2 school? Well, was it like the Georgia Southern at one point, D2? I don't know. I like, or is that one double A? I don't. Winona I, State? It, it, I know oh. that there was a D2 like national championship in basketball I watched that was electric because it was like 100 to like 98. But why does D2 never get talked about? What schools are D2? I don't think so, playing D three. So again, on a on a, on a broad basis, you know, he brings up D two. Um, they're on ESPN. If that's going to be the only measure that we have of, you know, whether people should care about, well, then there's a lot of schools that shouldn't be playing college athletics. Frankly, you know, JUCO shouldn't be playing. NAIA shouldn't be playing. Right. D3 shouldn't be playing, but it, it matters to the people there who are in the battle, in the school, in the fight and playing. So, you know, if you listen to that as a as a D3 athlete uh, or a D3 supporter and you were offended, you know, again, I think you got to take it with a little bit of tongue in cheek there. Um, Barstool Sports, it, it's kind of um, their brand not to not to be offensive. I, I, they've done an amazing job. Of building up that that company and everything that goes goes into it, um, but I mean it is a little bit more of their brand to kind of um, give their opinions or or be a little bit more hot take on things than maybe just kind of a straight sports news source. Um, 
but there were times in that video, I didn't think Dave Portnoy was necessarily trying to, to demean D3 football players. I, I think he was kind of complimenting their toughness to a certain extent. Now, why do these small schools, why do they have um, college athletics? And I think that was one thing that was left out of this discussion here. You know, for some of these schools, um, athletics really drives their enrollment. And so if they don't have these teams and they don't have these sports, you know, enrollment's going to go down and schools are starting to smaller schools, um, especially private schools are starting to shut down all across the nation. And, and it had been happening, but then after COVID it started to happen at a little bit more rapid rate. Um, so student athletes are some are lifebloods to a lot of these schools, especially D threes. And there's a lot of differences between the, the D three athlete and the D1 athlete, when you look at things like GPAs and graduation rates and just feeling a part of school. So please go back and check out our episode in defense of D3. And I kind of explain those in more depth. So if you're a D3 athlete and you got offended, I'm not saying you're wrong to be offended. And, and certainly there were certain points there where, you know, it would have bristled me. It would have rubbed me the wrong way as well if I was a, a D3 athlete. But at the same time, if you're a D3 football player and you heard that, I would kind of be a little, I, I would take it, I, I think I, I'd feel a little bit good just because of, I think, the toughness aspect of what it is that you're doing. Because normal people don't go through that, you know, without that kind of tangible reward. Normal people would not put themselves through all that punishment and all that discipline and all the other things that go in to be a successful football program without getting paid in some sort or, or without getting big rec recognition of some sport uh, of some sort. So what I'm going to tell you, if you're a D3 athlete, you're special, you matter, you count, go try your hardest, win a national championship and play until they rip the jersey off. So I'm telling you, as a guy in his mid 40s, I would give anything to go back and be able to play just a few more games and being around my teammates and my friends. So I, I feel really great that I had the, the from youth sport to, to college career that I had because I played as hard as I can or I played as hard as I could and, and I enjoyed it and it was great. Um, but, but nothing beats that feeling. Now, I say that there was kind of pre-marriage and family and post-marriage and family. Like there was a, a level of happiness pre-marriage of family that I had and now there's a, a different level of happiness uh, post-marriage and family. You know, nothing can compete now having a, um, a, a wife and a, and a child and, and just the great things that go along with that and just the amazingness that, that goes along with that. You know, it's just a different, for me, it's just a different form of happiness than it was um, before when I was single. But as kind of a single guy, um, pre-family, you know, going out there, playing sports, being part of a team and, and working to win, together to win a national championship. Um, there's just not a whole, whole lot of things better than that. So hope I made my point there. Um, I see both sides of that and um, take it for what it is. So that's going to wrap up this episode of the Facts Over Fandom show. Please make sure you uh, watch us on YouTube or Rumble. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google. Check us out online we're on twitter we're on instagram at fof underscore show love god love each other be a good sport we'll see you next friday